This morning's scripture reading is Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as he was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. For they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thank you, Jake, for reading this morning. Well, I've heard the story once of an old seasoned pastor who had been preaching for many years and lived kind of out in the country with his wife, and she raised chickens. And uh, one particular day, his wife asked him if he could grab something, some item from the closet in their room or something. And so, uh, being a good husband, he decided he was going to go do that. So he went to the room, and he opened the closet, and when he opened the closet, he was going to get that item, but then he noticed on her side of the closet, he noticed an egg carton. I was like, an egg? what is an egg carton doing in our closet? First time he ever seen it, ever noticed it at least. And so he goes and he picks up the egg carton. Sure enough, there are three eggs inside the egg carton. And he's like, well, that's interesting. Um, but then he went to go put it back down and he saw underneath where it had been laying was a stack of $1 bills. He's like, what is going on with this? And so he, he picked them up, kind of thumbed through them. Sure enough, $101 bills. He's like, what is going on? I got three eggs and $101 bills. He's really curious. So he forgets the item that he was supposed to bring, and he takes this, the eggs and the money to his wife, and he's like, honey, what is going on with this? What, is, what, what does all this mean? And she goes, well, you know, uh, early on in our marriage, I just decided Whenever you preach a message that's just, it's, it's okay, it's, it's just not the greatest that you've ever preached, I decided I'd put an egg in the carton. And at first he was a little disturbed for a second there, but then he thought to himself, you know, that's, I mean, you know, I've been pastor for almost 50 years, like, that's a lot of messages, that's a lot of, a lot of sermons, only three eggs? That's not too bad, I'm doing pretty good, three, egg, three bad sermons in 50 years, I, I'll take that. So feeling a little bit more confident, he asked her, well, what's the meaning of the $101 bills? And she said, well, any time I got to 12, I would go sell them at the market for a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully this morning is not quite like that kind of a message. But <clears throat> Shannon, that's probably the first time you ever heard me tell that one, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> Don't get any ideas. <laughs> So if, uh, if if next time I preach, if uh, if if we've got some eggs in the closet, I'll I'll report on how many eggs there are in the closet, and we'll we'll let you know. Well, we're in uh, Mark chapter ten this morning, 
just preaching through expositionally, just verse by verse through the Bible. That's what it means to preach expositionally. And, you know, as we preach through expositionally, like, like there's, there's, there's an aspect of that that's uh, kind of a, it's kind of a nice thing. It's kind of a, uh, there's, there's a joy of preaching through verse by verse. And that's, and that one of the joys of preaching verse by verse, there's a lot of others, but one of the joys is that when you come to a passage that's really controversial or really countercultural, you can kind of just blame the text. Like, I, I didn't write it. <laughs> it's just the next one, and this is what we're going to talk about today. Jesus said it, so that's what we're going to talk about. And so that's one of the joys of preaching expositionally. Uh, one of the difficulties of preaching expositionally is that when you come to a passage that's really countercultural, <laughs> you have to preach it. <laughs> you can't just skip it. And that's where we come to this morning. We come to a passage where Jesus is going to teach about divorce. Sometimes the values of the kingdom of God that Jesus teaches are countercultural. They go against the grain of culture. And that's what we find here in Mark chapter 10. And I think it's interesting that uh, Jesus, it says, enters the region of Judea, and it says, and beyond the Jordan. Now, there are two public figures of particular importance that we might associate with this region beyond the Jordan. So first of all, you got Herod. He's the king, you know, King Herod, the, uh, the ruler that was there in the area. And then you also had John the Baptist. That was his area where he ministered in. And if you remember back in Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist lost his head because he was standing up to King Herod. And what was it that he was standing up to King Herod about? Well, King Herod had divorced his wife, and he had married, and it was an incestuous relationship. And both of them had divorced to come together and get married. And John the Baptist said, that's wrong, that is sinful. And it ultimately cost him his life. He was beheaded for that. And it might just be coincidence. I don't know. It might just be coincidence. But I do think it's interesting that the Pharisees here in our text this morning ask Jesus a question about divorce. It says, in order to test him, in the very same region that John the Baptist had been beheaded for talking about this very topic. And it might be that the Pharisees here were hoping for a repeat execution. I don't know. But the point is that Jesus' teaching on divorce is not popular. But what makes this passage of Scripture difficult to talk through in a group this size is that divorce has hit probably all of us in some way. I mean, if we were to just take a step back and we were to ask, ask the questions, we were to say, how many of you have personally been through a divorce? And then we added to that, how many of you have a brother or sister who has been through a divorce? How many of you have a mom or dad who has been through a divorce? Or a grandparent, even though that's much less common, who has been through a divorce? Or how many of you have a close friend who has been through a divorce? I mean, if you were to say, if you were in this room and you were to say, nope, none of those. I've not experienced, not, not one person that I really even I'm close to, has ever experienced a divorce. You might be the only person in this room like that. I mean, divorce is pervasive in our culture. 
But what's more, what makes this even more difficult is that there are varying experiences with divorce. I mean, this ranges from maybe some in the room who just have a good friend who has gone through the process. Maybe some are living in the midst of a two-home life with at least the hassle of the back and forth. And some of you may have had a very dreadful experience of divorce yourself. And so as we approach an extremely countercultural topic that touches all of our lives, in some cases in extremely deep ways, and there may be various feelings about the topic itself, I just want everyone to know my heart from the beginning. I mean, on the one hand, I must, I, I, I will, and I must just boldly proclaim what Jesus teaches. But on the other hand, my heart this morning is not to stir up old hurts. I don't want to break a bruised reed or put out a smoldering wick this morning. I just want you all to know that I, I have labored over how to word things this morning, and I've prayed many times for a heart of compassion. For some of you, this, tu this touches very close to home, but I hope my heart this morning is evident, one of care and love. And so with that, let's jump in to our text this morning. And what I want us to see, first of all, is that sinful humanity looks for selfish exceptions. Sinful humanity looks for selfish exceptions. And Jesus here is going to radically challenge the cultural norms of his day. And in this passage today, he's going to say some things that were shocking to everyone who heard his words. But I think to better appreciate why he seems to come down so strongly with such a rigid view, we need to understand the background to the question here. So notice again the Pharisees' question. Okay, I just want to point your attention to this. Verse 2. Pharisees came up, and in order to test them, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now you might notice right away that the question is whether a man can divorce his wife, not the other way around. And you pick up the same thing in verse 4. Jesus responds with a question, and they respond with an answer. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, the Pharisees here are quoting, in, in verse 4, they're quoting what Moses taught in Deuteronomy 24. If you like to write in your Bible, you could write that in the margin there if it's not already there as a footnote. You can write Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But let me see if I can explain what was in the mind of, of the Pharisees, and really everyone present when they asked this question. Okay, in the days of Jesus, there were, there were two main rabbinic schools, schools of rabbis, like, like uh, categories that religious teachers would fall under. Okay, the first one, one was called the school of Shammai. And the Shammai school might be considered the more conservative school of, of, of rabbis. And when they read Deuteronomy 24, they taught that what Moses was teaching was that divorce was fine, it was okay, but only in cases where there was some kind of an unchastity. If a wife had an affair, 
then it was an then it was okay to divorce her. So this was probably the minority view in that day. Most likely, probably the majority view was the Hillel school. It's in your notes there. This group taught that man a man could divorce his wife for just about any reason. Let me let me just give you some real examples that were actually taught in this day. Not from the Bible, but from extra biblical material. Ben Sira 25:26 says this. If she does not accept your control, divorce her and send her away. Okay, so, I mean, if you tell your wife, this is what we think, this is what I really think the family should do, and if she pushes back on that, she's like, I don't think that's a good idea. Up, oh, away with her. Nope. We're going to do what I say. One church historian wrote, at this time, I divorced my wife, not liking her behavior. I mean, I just don't really like the way that you fold the laundry. I really wish it was in, like, squares and not rectangles. And so, uh, sorry, but it's grounds for divorce. Here's your certificate. Okay, one, one passage in the Mishnah states, it says this, The school of Hillel say he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. I mean, ladies, have you ever in your entire marriage overcooked some chicken? Because according to Hillel, that's grounds for divorce. <laughs> or what about this one? The same passage in the Mishnah goes on, and it says, Rabbi Akaba says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and they quote Deuteronomy 24, and it shall be if she find no favor in his eyes. I mean, can you imagine the pressure on women in these days? This is absolutely horrifying. It is disgusting to treat women in this way. And it is a downright abomination to treat women this way and cite the Lord of creation as the reason. It's a horrible reversal of what what the teaching is from Moses. But this was general practice among even Jews in the days of Jesus. And so you can begin to understand why Jesus would respond in the way that he did. But before we go on, I'd just like to suggest that since the days of Jesus, not much has changed. By the year 1975, more marriages in America ended in divorce than those that ended in death. Forbes advisor reports that in 2021, 689,308 divorces occurred in the 45 states that reported. It is commonly reported that about half of first marriages end in divorce, and second and third marriages fail at an even higher rate. And in our culture, divorce does not just happen because of adultery or abuse or something like this. And with the advent of no-fault divorce laws, it's just that much easier to exit a marriage, just because you feel like it. And it's true that there has been a recent decline in the divorce rate in our country, There has been a recent decline, but there's also been a recent decline in the marriage rate. And in today's day, many people find marriage unnecessary. Why not just live together and not go through all the hassle? So even though the numbers might show a slight decline in divorce, they betray an even lower view of marriage than before. And here's the point. The Pharisees in Jesus' day viewed marriage as... I don't know, something to be disposed of at a man's will. 
And even though we live in a much less patriarchal culture than in these days, we basically view marriage the same way. I mean, our culture treats marriage like an athlete's contract. I mean, I, I don't know what it's like for other sports, because I don't really follow many sports, but I do watch, so- I do like soccer. And I like, uh, I like European soccer, English premierly. And so uh, it just amazes me sometimes, because they'll have these contracts. And, you, an, and an athlete might sign, a soccer player might sign a six-year contract, but very few of them ever actually complete their full contract. Because what will happen is the, the, com- the, the team, the, the soccer club, will, will buy out their contract. They'll sell them a year or so before their contract runs out, because then they make more money that way. And so what do they do? They treat, they treat these contracts like, I mean, it's like, well, you, you know, we'll sign this paper, we'll, we'll come to this agreement, but it's really only as long as it really benefits us. I mean, it, once, once there's somebody that who might benefit us more, then we'll just, you know, cast you out and we'll add somebody else. And in many ways, that is how our culture treats marriage. But here's what I want to suggest this morning. Not just suggest, here's what I want to declare this morning. That is not how God treats marriage. The creator of marriage has an entirely different intention for marriage than what our culture teaches. Sinful humanity will always look for selfish exceptions. And I think this is betrayed in the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. Did you catch this? There's a subtle word that follows Moses in the text. Did you see this? Look at verse, uh, this happens twice. Look at verse 3. He answered them, Jesus is speaking here, what did Moses command you? And what did they reply? They said, Moses allowed a man. I mean, Jesus was asking for positive teaching, and they gave him the negative permission. He asked for the rule, and they gave him the exception. So let me just quickly explain what's going on in Deuteronomy 24, because they clearly, wildly misunderstood what, what Moses was teaching in Deuteronomy 24. Um, I think I've got the text on the screen here. Let me just read Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And to truly, to truly do justice to this, we'd have to spend a whole sermon just on Deuteronomy 24, so you'd understand the context and the, and the patriarchal culture behind this. But let me just read this for you. Moses says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, are you catching all these ifs, ifs, ifs? And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, Then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. In other words, there's no wife swapping, he's saying. um, These verses describe a right to which a woman was entitled to in the case of a divorce. In other words, Moses is not saying, oh, sure, if you want to, just go ahead and go get a divorce. No, He's saying, I mean, if you're already there, if if you've already gone there, then here are some provisions that you must give that woman. You must give her a bill of divorce so that she has the right to remarry and not be left to starve. Because the 
The family was the institution of care and welfare in that society. There was no social security. And so if she got left on her, on her own, she couldn't remarry, then she was in big trouble. And so this, this teaching in Deuteronomy 24 is actually to protect women. And there's a lot more that we could explain about the background and culture in Moses' day and to understand Deuteronomy 24 better. But suffice it to say that God was protecting women's rights 3,500 years before it was ever in vogue. <laughs> and let me just say, I think this is important. Our culture may overstate some things, but God cares about women and their rights. Moses wrote to people in a patriarchal society, and Jesus is speaking here in Mark 10 to people in a patriarchal society. They're both speaking to, to, to a patriarchal society. And what Jesus does is he gives complete equality to women. I mean, look at verse, look at verse 11 and 12. I already, sh- I already showed you earlier. I mean, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Moses allowed a man to, to write a certificate of divorce. Look, look at verses 11 and 12 here. I mean, Jesus is explaining things to his disciples in the house, and he says this. He says, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. I mean, in this day, in Jesus' day, it was never said, never, that a man could commit adultery against a woman. I mean, they would say that a man could commit adultery against the woman's husband, but never against the woman. I mean, so what, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus gave women equality with men long before Westerners ever came up with the idea. But here's the point. Here's the point of, the, of this first main point here. The exception cannot be made the norm. The exception cannot be made the norm. One guy said, You do not learn to fly an airplane by following the instructions for making a crash landing. It's not going to help you. It's not going to teach you. You'll not be successful in war if you train by the rules for beating a retreat. Those are the exceptions. The exception cannot be made the norm, but that's what the Pharisees did, and that's what sinners do. Sinful, sinful humanity always looks for selfish exceptions. But secondly, here's what I want you to see next. The sovereign God sets the intended pattern. Jesus asked them what Moses commanded, and they replied with what Moses allowed. But Deuteronomy 24 is not the only thing that Moses taught about marriage and divorce. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, and the Pharisees missed a much more fundamental teaching on marriage and divorce than the permission in Deuteronomy 24. And so what was in Jesus' mind? I mean, when he asked them, what did Moses command you? What was in Jesus' mind? You know what was in Jesus' mind? It was Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And we see that because look at verse 5. Look what he says. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, and then he quotes Genesis 1, God made them male and female. And then he quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
what is the meaning of marriage? What is the purpose of marriage in the first place? And what Jesus is doing here is he is emphasizing the permanency of marriage. He is lifting that up. That's what Jesus thinks is a big deal. Marriage is intended to be permanent. And it's extremely important that Jesus includes the phrase, one flesh. In fact, he repeats it a second time he ex- as he's explaining Genesis 2. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So what, what's the point? Why is this such a big deal? Why, why is this one flesh such a big deal? Okay, so this morning, uh, this morning, Jake Boucher, he came in and he sat over there on that side. And Monty Ryan came in and he sat over there on that side. No big deal, right? Wow, Jordan, that's really profound. Okay, no big, no big deal. This is a Baptist church, of course. Everyone, we got names written on the pews. No big deal. I mean, <coughs> um, but what if, what if Jake came in? What if Jake's name was written both on that seat over there and on this seat over here next to Monty? All right, Jake, go ahead. Let's see you uh, sit in both places at once. All right, ready? We'll we'll wait. Go ahead. All right, that's not going to work. Why why is that not going to work? Well, because he's not, um, he's not God, right? I mean, he's not omnipresent. He can't be in two places at once. He is confined to his body. He is confined to his flesh. And the only way to make him sit in both places at once is to cause his death. And we don't want to do that this morning or ever. <laughs> but the point of one flesh is that the two are indivisible. You cannot divide them. Because it's not even a them, plural. It's singular. It's, it's they are one. They are singular. And you can't divide them. It's impossible. That's what Jesus is teaching here about marriage. The only thing that should separate a marriage is death. Marriage is intended to last for life. Now, let me, let me pause here for just a minute and answer a question that you might have. This is an important question. It's this. Why is there no exception clause here in Mark? Because in the parallel passage in Matthew, Jesus says, Matthew records that Jesus also said, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. But Mark doesn't say except for sexual immorality. So what's going on here? Why does Mark not include that exception? And I think there are some good reasons for Mark's omission, such as the fact that Mark is writing to Christians in Rome where divorce was even more common and easy, and the fact that Mark emphasizes everyone's failure to misunderstand who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. Okay, but on this question of divorce and adultery or, uh, or desertion, or I'd, I'd just like to make some careful and pastoral comments here. First, We need to understand that Jesus is talking to hostile opponents here. He's not shepherding someone who is in the midst of painful circumstances. He's not trying to walk someone through a specific situation. He's explaining the purpose of marriage to opponents who are trying to make the exception the norm. I mean, when Jesus Jesus interacts with the woman caught in adultery, he meets her with compassion and he defends her against aggressors. When he talks to the woman at the well who had five husbands, he tenderly brings her to the good news of forgiveness of sin. But when Jesus meets Pharisees trying to trap him with a wrong view of what God intended, 
he hotly exposes their hypocrisy and he sharply rebukes them. Okay, but second, scripture does make allowances in certain cases for divorce. If you want to write in your notes, Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 describe some of these. But as one commentator says, divorce may sometimes be the lesser of two evils, but it is never pleasing to God or good in itself. It should not be looked upon by conscientious Christians as the preferred option. Can I just carefully and lovingly say this? God hates divorce. It was not his intention. He hates it. There may be exceptions, but that should not cause us to think of divorce as a good thing. And then third, let me say this. It's some, this is something that each of us needs to study and come to a conclusion based on what Scripture teaches. Not, not based on what I feel like, but what does Scripture teach? I mean, good Bible scholars come to different conclusions as far as what exceptions there are. Is it okay to remarry after? Good Bible scholars come to different conclusions on these things. And if you would like help in thinking this through, both Pastor Wood and I would love to sit down and talk through some of the relevant scriptures and, and help you come to a conclusion on your own. But whatever cl- conclusion you come to, it is clear that divorce is not a moral good. It may be the lesser evil in a certain circumstance, but it is not God's original plan. The problem is that our culture just like these Pharisees, treats divorce as a right to be exercised at will. And Jesus exposes this. He exposes the problem. There is a problem with this kind of thinking. Look at verse 5. He he shows them. Jesus said to them, Why did Moses give you this permission in the first place? Here's what he says. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. What what do you mean, Jesus? What do you mean hardness of heart? How are their hearts hard? Look at verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. These Pharisees wanted to control what God had created. They wanted to be God. And that's what our culture does too. Who is God to tell me I can or cannot get a divorce? Now, I do want to be very, very clear on something. There are truly abusive situations in which a spouse should be removed from the situation. This passage should never, ever be used to counsel someone to remain in a physically abusive situation in marriage. But many divorces occur simply because I just don't feel in love with her anymore. I mean, we just aren't really compatible. He doesn't make me happy like he used to. But God intends for marriage to be between one man and one woman for all of life. That's how God created it to be. 
one man, one woman, for all of life. Now, because of the nature of this topic, I'd like to spend just a little extra time than normal in making some applications. Marriage and divorce hit each of us in so many different ways because of so many different life experiences. And so I'd like to make some applications to several different kinds of people in the room. Let me start with this. Really general one for all of us. Take marriage seriously. Whether you are 8 or 80, male or female, married or single, divorced or never divorced, take marriage seriously. As a church, we must do everything we can to champion the sanctity of marriage. In an uncommitted world where what is most important is what makes me feel happy right now, we must, as a church, honor marriage as valuable and permanent. But that's really, really general. So let me, let me get specific. And I'm going to just kind of rattle these off. And I'd like you to take some time and think through some of these. Um, to those who have been deeply affected by divorce in any way, and it, it was against your will, let me reassure you that God hates divorce. What you have experienced was not God's original intention. And if you have been wronged, remember that God will make all wrongs right. God sees and he will do justice. Some of you may be living with terrible guilt because of the divorce you have experienced. I don't know everyone's story here. And I have no one, no one person in mind as I've been thinking through all of these things. But it may be that you realize that in your past, you made some poor choices that don't reflect God's desire for marriage. And it may be that you have incredible guilt because of it. But I want to remind you what Jesus says in the very, the very book that we're studying, Mark. He says this in Mark chapter 3, verse 28. All sins, all. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man. There is no way that you have misrepresented God's intention for marriage that God cannot forgive you of. Run to Jesus who will forgive you. Run to Jesus because he can heal you of the pain in your past. The very one who created marriage and makes this statement about marriage in Mark 10 is the one who died for anyone who has failed in this way. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. Let me say a few words to maybe the unmarried in the room. Because there is application here for even those who are unmarried. I mean, teens and kids, first of all. You need to know that God's intention for marriage is for it to be between one man and one woman for all of life. I mean, the culture around us is tearing down every single one of these aspects of marriage, but Jesus affirms it right here in Mark 10. Marriage is between one man and one woman for all of life. But for all the unmarried, whether you're a teen or older, for any who desire to be married at some point, can I say this? Be careful with whom you enter a lifelong commitment to. If marriage is intended to be for life, then you don't want to marry someone just because you have an excited feeling about that person. 
No one is perfect. And everyone, no matter how good they make you feel, everyone will let you down. And spouses let each other down in deep ways sometimes. So look for someone who loves Jesus and is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Are they a follower of Christ who loves Jesus with all their heart? Marry that kind of person. One more quick one for the unmarried. One of the best ways that you can honor marriage now is actually by being careful with the opposite sex, especially someone who is married. Do not vie for their attention. Practice appropriate friendship with both the husband and wife in a married couple. This is why I, when, I, when I text a female, I try to include my wife or parents. I mean, I don't even, just be careful. Be careful. Finally, two things for those who are married. First, do not let divorce even be an option on the table. When you hit hard times in your marriage, and you will, don't even le- let it be an option. Well, we're going to try some counseling, but if that doesn't work, we just might have to separate. No, no, we are going to do counseling, and we are going to do whatever it takes. And we're not just going to live, each o- live by each other side by side, but, but hate each other. No, we are going to grow, and we're going to do whatever it takes to grow together. But we will not divorce. But second and last, I'd like to maybe just end on kind of a positive note. Rather than getting to the place where we're doing damage control in the aftermath of a divorce, if you're married right now, what are you doing right now, right now, to strengthen your marriage? I mean, if you do not actively seek to grow closer together, you will grow further apart. I mean, just think about this. The only thing that you have to do to grow distant in marriage is nothing. Do nothing, and your marriage will gradually grow so cold that you might as well be divorced, even if you don't have the papers. So work hard to grow close together. Here's some ideas. Do the hard work of being open and honest with each other. That's not really an idea. That's like, do it. (laughs) But pray together every day. Read scripture or a devotional book together. Uh, How about this? Adopt an older married couple and get with them regularly so that you can learn from them and establish channels of communication with someone you respect for when times in your marriage get hard. On the flip side, adopt a younger married couple and get with them regularly. And as you talk with that younger married couple, you might be surprised at how that brings you closer together in your own marriage. Here's another one. Not really a suggestion, a do this. Do not tolerate sexual immorality of any kind. Do not tolerate it. Along those lines, give each other open access to your devices. Okay, this is very countercultural because <laughs> we live in a very individualistic society. But it should be completely comfortable and normal for, for a spouse, for your spouse to pick up your phone at any given time without your immediate consent and look through anything that they want to on your phone. Remember, we are, if you're married, you are one flesh. 
So sure, we live in an individualistic society, but you are one individual, in a sense. You're one flesh. So that should be totally normal. And I might say, if that causes you to be like, oh, I don't know about that, then we've got some problems, right? You're one flesh. And so ha- and share everything together. Evaluate, here's another one. Evaluate your, your relationship with each other spiritually, emotionally, and physically. And if you need help in any of these areas, ask for it. Ask for help. Now, I just rattle off several things here, but do something. Do something. Do something. If, you're mar- if you do nothing, your marriage will grow cold. So do something. And I think what we will find is that when we as God's kingdom people exalt marriage as permanent and work to strengthen our marriages, I think at least two things will happen. First, we will begin to experience the oneness and closeness and ecstatic joy that God intended marriage to be. You'll actually really love and enjoy your marriage. But then secondly, what will happen is that this kind of joyful oneness, because it's so out of the ordinary in our culture, this kind of joyful oneness will actually become contagious to a watching world. Wow, they really love each other. Yes. (laughs) And that's what God can do in your marriage. That's what God intends for your marriage. Marriage is between one man and one woman for all of life. So may God give us grace to strengthen marriage and our view of marriage in our church here at Walnut Park. Let's pray. God, we thank you for clear teaching in your word. We pray that you would give us hearts that would submit to your clear teaching. And we pray that marriage would be lifted up as a, as a sanctified, very good thing. And that we would champion the sanctity of marriage in this place. And we pray that that would become a great apologetic for the city of Muscatine as they see Christians who love their spouses and care deeply about marriage. Would you do this in our church? In Christ's name, amen.